Hey there, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. How to tell the story of Rwanda? Well, there are a few different ways. One story starts in 1994, the year of one of the 20th century's most shocking crimes, a year when 800,000 people, mostly ethnic Tutsi, were killed by their Hutu neighbors in the course of only 100 days. And a year when a young, exiled military commander named Paul Kagame led his Rwandan patriotic front to victory in the country's civil war, took over the government, and began the process of rebuilding and transforming this broken country into one of the fastest growing and innovative economies on the continent of Africa, now frequently compared to Singapore and Hong Kong. But there are other ways to tell Rwanda's story. Stories that start decades before the genocide when the country's kings and Western colonial administrators formalized ethnic divisions and used violence to enforce them. Stories that describe Kagame's participation in the genocide, or at least his role in prolonging it. And stories that show how the legacy of political repression in Rwanda still endures today. The truth is, I don't know how to tell this story, but I know two people that can. So I have, I have two guests today. The first is Victoire Ngabiri, who was imprisoned while running for president in 2010 and remains a leading figure in the country's pro-democracy movement. And the second is Anjan Sundaram, the author of the book Bad News, Last Journalists in a Dictatorship, which describes his efforts to build a free press in Rwanda. Victoire is up first and joins me next. Hi, Victoire. Thank you so much for joining me all the way from Kigali. Okay, thank you too for having me. So I want to start with a question that I think will help us understand uh, the paradox of Rwanda over the last 30 years. So how has Kigali changed over the course of your lifetime? Yeah, Kigali changed. It's a beautiful city. You can see that the streets are cleaned. There are new, many buildings. So it is a beautiful city to see, yes. Would you say that there are more beautiful buildings than when you were growing up? Yes. Yes, they are beautiful buildings, flowers, streets where the car cannot ride in. It is a really beautiful city, yes. But you don't have to go outside the Chigari because outside the Chigari is something else. You can think that it's the other countries. You cannot think that it's the same country. Mm. So, so then what do you attribute Kigali's transformation? I think it's, it's fair to say. What do, you, what do you attribute that to? What accounts for that? I think that was really the, the achievement of the President Kagame and his regime the, after the genocide. Uh, you know, I was uh, outside the country. And when I come back in 2010, I was surprised. Nobody can make that was the country where there was a war. And uh, they really, this, this is really the achievement of the regime of Kagame. Well, so let's let's talk about the regime of Kagame. What's what's your story, Victoire? What, what's been your experience with the government of Paul Kagame? Uh, maybe we can begin with my story. This I am a former presidential hopeful in 2010. Presidential elections in Rwanda was dreams were shattered when I ended up being arrested and sentenced um, to 15 years jail sentence. On appeal, the African Court for Human Rights and the People ruled that my right has been violated and ordered the Rwanda government to pay reparations. But the government 
they did not recognize this uh, order of the court. And until today, they refuse to recognize this uh, order of the court. They refuse to, to pay the reparations that uh, was uh, ordered by the court. But uh, I was released under uh, the presidential clemency after serving 80 years in the prison, including five years in the solitary confinement. I was released by uh, President Chagles, as I told you, with conditions. I can't leave in my country without the approval from the Ministry of Justice from Rwanda. And uh, I must also appear once a month to the local prosecutor office to confirm that I am still in the country. I have asked three times the permission to leave the country, but I did not receive any response from the authorities. Therefore, I can't travel to meet my family who are still living in the Netherlands, and I have not seen them over the past 12 years. So I was not to attend my son's wedding last year. For example, I asked, I begging the government to let me to assist the, the wedding of my son because I have three children and my daughter was married when I was in prison. And when I was released, my son uh, had the wedding and they asked the authorization to assist, but the government refused. My husband is severely sick since 2016 and he can't travel, and I cannot travel to see him. And today, I am leading a political party in development and liberties for all. But my effort to get it registered have been fruitless. However, despite the refusal, obstacles, and the threats, I am still standing up and calling for democracy rule of law, respect for human rights, and development for all. The, for me, I say that is the only pathway to deliver peace and the prosperity in Rwanda and in the Kritilex region. So what was the official reason that the, the government gave for your imprisonment? Uh, official reason is uh, that they said that I, minimi- I was condemned for minimizing for genocide. Uh, a claim that I rejected because what happened when I come back in Rwanda, uh, I went to the memorial of genocide in Gisozi, and where I heard my speech, I said that to, to achieve reconciliation, we have to recognize all crimes committed in Rwanda. And as you know, there is a genocide committed against the Tutsis, and that was committed by the prior government. And there was also the crime against humanity committed against the Hutus. And that was committed by some military of um, the RPF, the ruling party of the President Kagame. That was the crime I committed to talk about the crime committed by some soldiers of, the, of Kagame. And that was uh, that is why I was accused. The second accusation was about the speeches I said when I was outside the countries, criticized the government, uh, the police of the government, and that was the crime saying that I was uh, um, spread the rumors. And the accusation was conspiracy. 
that was not something I had nothing to do with because they, they was in the court with me, three former soldiers of Afderer, and the government accused me to collaborate with them. But this man, I didn't know them. I don't know where the government found them. But they confirmed that I worked with them. That was the, the third accusation that I conspired against the government. So that was the accusation I faced in the court in Rwanda. Why do you think you were imprisoned? Do you, do you take those accusations seriously? Of course, because I was condemned for 15 years. The government took this accusation seriously, but I did not believe it. That is why I made the appeal to the Africa Court for Human and the People's Rights. You talked a bit about the, the time that you spent in prison, the, the five years you spent in solitary confinement. What were the conditions like in the prison where you were being held? Uh, the five years where I was in the solitary confinement, for example, where I was the one room. And uh, I spent the holiday in that room. Uh, and the, the windows were painted in the, in the black that I, can have, I can't have the, the light inside. Is every day has to have the light on, and that was warm. If there was the period of the the summer, it was really hot in the in the room, and uh, yeah, I spent the holiday on uh, alone there in this cell. Only in the evening, they send someone, one of the prison women, prison who come to spend the night with me, but only it was someone who come to talk with me and listen what I will say. And the next day, she has to report what I said. This was some kind of spy. Victoire, why, why don't more people outside Rwanda, or, or perhaps even inside Rwanda, know your story? You know that I think that we live today in the world where people want only to hear success story. And we have the government who pays so many lobbying organizations that only the histories that people know about Rwanda is only the success story that Rwanda uh, is a economic, and people talk about it. But as I told right, you... Right, and this is, this is the story that you were explaining a bit in the beginning of our conversation, you know, when you were talking about the way Kigali's changed. This is yes, what... but I told you that it's only Kigali. You don't have to go outside the Kigali to see that the, the, the people live in the abject poverty there. So this, I say always that the, 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 the development is not only to build the beautiful building in the Kigali and the clean streets in Kigali, and forget that we have the majority of Rwanda, Rwandans live in the rural areas and that we have to develop also these, the, those rural areas in Rwanda. So there's many people, if they come in Rwanda, they stay only in Kigali or they go in the, in the Goliras in the, in the north of the country. It's so the, only the two cities who are really developed where you can find beautiful building, but you have to go inside, you have to go in the west to see that the, the Rwanda is a poor country. And the people, if they talk about the miracle of economic in Rwanda, they forget that Rwanda is still among um, 25 people, poorest country in the world. And of course, Western embassies and business leaders travel to Kigali. They don't see the rest of the city or the country quite as much. 
So is your story unique? I mean, can you tell us some of the stories about other opposition figures, your friends and, and former co-leaders in, in the democracy movement? The democracy movement in Rwanda? Yes, yeah. No, there is no... There is no... This, what people maybe should understand is that in Rwanda we have a problem of political persecution and human rights violation. We, we, I can say that Rwanda is not a free country. If, for example, you, you consult the report of Freedom House for this year, you see that Rwanda scores 23% of, uh, of liberties, civil liberties and the politics freedom. This, I can say that there is no, Rwanda is not free, the people are not, um, they, they don't have right to express them they mind if you if you dare or you you are perceived to challenge the government's policies and narratives in some cases is you are persecuted and labeled to be an enemy of the state intending to destabilize the rwanda this this is really the problem we have in rwanda maybe the listeners of your emission has to, to know that uh, until today, I come back in 2010 and I was arrested into, in October, to the safety year, and I spent eight, year, eight years in prison. I was released in September 2018. And when I was released, the vice president for my political party was in the prison also. And uh, he is missing since October 2018 until today. The government can't tell us where he is, he's missing. And the, my assistant was assassinated in March 2019. And in July, the safety year, the other representative in the Eastern was disappeared. Until today, we don't know what happened with him. And in September, the safety year, this 2019, the coordinator of my political party was assassinated. Until today, the government can't tell us what happened. Who assassinated my colleagues? Where are my colleagues who disappeared? This I said, Rwanda is a little country, it's a small country. You can't say that someone disappeared and vanished and the, the, the institutions cannot tell us where they are. The security service cannot tell us where they are. And in the, I think the last person who were missing is, was also my, my assistant, was missing since June 2020. And until today, the government can't tell us where he is. That is the, the, the climate where you operate as opposition in Rwanda. Bitwa, do you, do you feel safe in Rwanda? Uh, you know, when, it, uh, when I sleep, I go sleep and I wake up in the morning, I say, okay, thanks to God, I am still living. <laughs> and in, I am there the, the whole day, I am, I, am, I, am, I am asking what will happen today? What will happen? For example, now I give you an interview. I know that after we, when you will, you, will, you will publish this interview, the next day I will be attacked the uh, members of ruling parties, and that that means that they will stay afraid, saying what will happen if they will arrest me or they will kidnap me or they will kill me. This you have to live every day 
in a, in a fear to be kidnapped, to be killed, to be arrested. So that is the situation in our country. So your, your president, Paul Kagame, he justifies Rwanda's non-democracy because he says it's given Rwanda development and security. So I guess my question is, can, can Rwanda continue to have development and security and be a democracy? Of course, I believe in inclusive development, democracy, and the respect of human rights, as this can indeed break the cycle of political violence we have seen happen in our country. So this, I, don't, I don't agree with the president if he says that we can't open up a political space because they can again have a genocide, but people have to understand why, ask themselves why we had genocide in Rwanda because of a policy of exclusions. This since Rwanda is an independent country, we know the violence in our country. The people to, to, to hold the powers or to get the power, they use the violence until today. You, you wrote recently that uh, the first step, I'm quoting here, the first step towards nonviolence would be for Rwanda to seek a new consensus on governance that's based on a common telling of our history, end quote. Victoire, can you tell us that story? What, what is the, the common story that could rally all Rwandans? For me, I think that we have to accept our history, learn from our mistakes, and build on the achievement of past regimes. And we can build on what we did well and learn from what we failed on. That is what, that is, that is what I believe. I can't say we, because we had the genocide, we can't open up a political space. And we know that we had the genocide because of policies of exclusion. And today, the current regime is a, uh, he made the self mistakes. This they have to open up a political space. People need to be free to express their mind without problems. But if you explain your your mind and you are labeled to be the enemy of the country. That is exclusion. That is, that is a big problem for our country. That is the cause we had the genocide in Rwanda. That is the cause we had the um, coup d'etat in Rwanda in 1973. This we have now to have in an open society. Victoire, all the way from Kigali, thank you so much for telling us your story and for sharing with us your vision. It was great to meet you. Okay, thank you too. Today's show is sponsored by Best Buy. Best Buy is the number one retailer for consumer electronics. In fact, the podcast you're listening to was edited on a Best Buy computer, recorded through a Best Buy microphone, and reviewed using Best Buy headphones. Best Buy works hard every day to enrich the lives of consumers through technology, whether they buy online or in stores. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. I'm now thrilled to be joined by Anjan Sundaram. Uh, Anjan, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Ethan. Pleasure to be here. 
So what were you doing during your, your time in Rwanda? Why were you there? So I went to Rwanda to write my first book. And uh, I, I was looking for a job just to pay my bills. And, you know, I have some connection with society. So I got this job training a class of about a dozen journalists, Rwandan journalists, newspaper journalists. I didn't realize when I began to teach these journalists that they were some of the last independent reporters in Rwanda. And that's how my whole story began. So one thing you point out in that book, Bad News, uh, which we'll link to in the show notes, is that the the lack of independent reporting makes it hard to track the government's abuses. So what did you see when you were there? What what tools of repression does Kagame's regime use? So, I mean, the history of repression in, in Rwanda goes back centuries. Rwanda has always been an autocratic, very centralized society. It's a very mountainous country. And so to control it and to govern it, uh, the authorities had always used this network of informants. So the whole country is divided into little villages. Each village has about 100 families. And information passes from the center to the to these family units. They're called imidugudus, uh, very efficiently. And uh, you, you can see the power of this kind of control in the 1994 genocide uh, in Rwanda when uh, 800,000 or a million people were killed, uh, the vast majority of them Tutsis, ethnic Tutsis, and the government ordered you know, uh, the targeting of the Tutsis in the genocide. And, they, and very quickly after the order was, was uh, issued, the killing began almost simultaneously across the country, and it was very, very effective, very efficient, very fast, uh, very tragic. But uh, that, that system of control continues until today, in which the president of Rwanda can, you know, issue orders and they'll be executed around the country. I, I saw, you know, every time I went to a town, my friends had to report that I was there to the authorities. They had to know who was coming, who was going. Um, my friends, my journalist friends were beaten up if they criticized the president of Rwanda. One of them was shot dead on the same day he criticized the president. Others were imprisoned. After criticizing him, they were taken to jail. One of them had HIV. I remember her name was Agnes, and her immune system was down, but the prison guards wouldn't let her sleep, even though she needed the sleep. So they would drag her from cell, uh, cell to cell uh, all night so that she couldn't sleep. And a couple of them, were their lives were threatened, and I helped one of them get out of the country. Uh, so these, these are all, you know, they happen. Very, it's very common in Rwanda that if you criticize the authorities, you criticize President Paul Kagame of Rwanda, you're going to come under a lot of pressure. That, that deep sense of, of paranoia that you're talking about, that the sense that you're constantly being watched is so well embedded into the book. By the end, I felt like I was living through kind of a bad nightmare. To what extent, though, Anjan, I mean, could your book represent a snapshot in time? You were there from about 2008 to 2013. Could that have just been a, a particularly repressive time or does it represent Rwanda as it is today? So I think it was a particularly repressive time. You're right, because the 2010 elections uh, happened and the country's press was destroyed. You know, and, and uh, you can see similar things around the world. Even in the even in the U.S., there's pressure on the on the media, on the press. So yes, it was it was a particularly difficult time. But the sad news is that it formed part of a trend, and the trend for the last 20 years in Rwanda has been ever increasing repression. So in that election in 2010, Kagame won that vote with 93 percent of the 
the vote. In 2017, he won with 99% of the vote. And the elections are due next year. I don't know if he's going to get 100%, but it's certainly trending in that direction where there are fewer and fewer voices that can oppose him, that can, can criticize him. And as we all know, a free press is so essential to you know all our societies. If the government can abuse power without being held accountable, without anybody speaking up about it, then the government will. And that's what's happening in Rwanda. You read about a, a, an amazing exchange. I mean, we talked earlier in the show with uh, a former presidential candidate, Victoire Ngabiri, about her imprisonment by the Kagame regime. But the Kagame regime uses other means to co-opt political opposition. Can you talk about that conversation that you had with a, a, a political opposition leader? And I'm using air quotes intentionally there. So the opposition in Rwanda in these elections, often they know that if they were really serious opposition, they end up in prison, like Victoire Ngabiri. And so I spoke to this opposition leader in his office, and I asked him why he was, you know, why he was uh, participating in this theater, uh, why he was pretending to be an opposition candidate when everybody knew that Kagame was going to win with more than 90% of the vote. Uh, and what he was doing by running as an opposition candidate was making the election seem legitimate to outside observers, you know, and, and uh, pretending uh, that, that it's a fair process. And when the elections happened, I remember he declared defeat as if it was, you know, news. Uh, and, and I asked him, you know, and he said to me, basically, this is how you survive in Rwanda. And it's a hard decision. I don't want to judge people who are living in Rwanda today, because if they don't play along with the president and play along with the, the theater, uh, they get kicked out. And, you know, many Rwandans, particularly Tutsis, have lived abroad in exile for so many decades. And for them to be back in their country is a precious thing. And so some of them feel that they need to, you know, play these roles and uh, pretend to be Kagame's friend and play the role that he needs them to play in order to survive. And I told him, hey, you know, uh, aren't you worried that the same thing that happened to the other opposition guys is going to happen to you? And he looked at me kind of strange. And I and I said, well, people with bigger offices, bigger cars, bigger houses, who had more money, who received more money from Kagame for being his sidekicks, they're now abroad in Europe and in America, you know, in the U.S., and they feared for their lives. They had to flee. They had to run away from their families and get to safety because they were afraid Kagame would attack and maybe kill them. And so don't, aren't you afraid the same thing will, will happen to you? And he just he looked at me and, you know, I think that's the moment of truth for many of them. They're, they're living day to day and they're cutting deals with Kagame so that they can survive and live in Rwanda. But the future, they don't know because he can turn on them just as he turned on many of his allies. And even he tried to, he's assassinated and hasn't shied away from uh, saying so. Assassinated some of his former colleagues, one of them in South Africa, Patrick Karijaya. Uh, and he's, you know, his forces have tried to assassinate other, other close colleagues, his former army chief of staff. So it's a very dangerous business being close to Kagame. And that's the question I asked the opposition candidate. You're close to Kagame today, but tomorrow what happens? There's, there's another exchange that you share. The book is chock full of these kind of jaw-dropping moments. And the one that most caught my attention was your conversation with a European diplomatic official you, you, where you pressed him on his government's willingness to support Kagame's regime. And he responds by saying, uh, he says, I have no problem with giving money to a dictator. Uh, do Rwanda's Western backers know the extent of the government's abuses? I think they do. Uh, it's, it's not news. You know, I published the New York Times front page piece uh, about 10 days ago. And uh, 
and that made the front page, even though all of Kagame's Western backers, who were not funding 70% of Rwanda's national budget, they're funding 70% of a dictatorship's budget, they know the extent to which Rwanda is a dictatorship, but it's convenient for them, just as you know, it's been convenient to partner with Saudi Arabia or Saddam Hussein or you know uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria. They've, the West has partnered with many, many dictators over the years, and Kagame just offered them enough uh, for them to cut those deals with him, enough of a partnership, enough of what they wanted. In, in Kagame's case, you know, he offers. Uh, peacekeepers or his soldiers to to fight battles or keep the peace across Africa so that the West does not need to risk their own troops. And that's worth a lot to Western governments to not have another Black Hawk down, you know, for example. And uh, and so he offers that. And uh, I think my piece in The New York Times and slowly, you know, my book and other other journalists who are you know starting to speak up, and the fact, the fact that my piece went on the front page calling Kagame a brutal dictator, but one of the West's best friends, I think that's changing the narrative, and people are seeing that. Also, the fact that you know the hotel, former hotel Rwanda manager, you know, who received the presidential medal uh, or some high award in in the U.S., he was imprisoned in Rwanda, but the U.S. extricated him from prison in Kigali and got him back to the U.S. All of these events are turning the narrative on Kagame, and I think it's becoming the West always knew to answer your question, but I think it's becoming more inconvenient for the West to now turn a blind eye and say, oh no, he's a reformer, he's a visionary, he's, he's a benevolent authoritarian. That's becoming less possible for them to you know, peddle that line. And people are becoming more and more aware of the repression he, you know, that ordinary Rwandans face, that journalists in Rwanda face, that any activists, any opposition figures, uh, they're under, it's, it's, a, it's an almost totalitarian country, except when you go there as a foreigner, you don't feel that, you don't see that. You, as a foreigner, you live a pretty free life. And that's a sophisticated level of dictatorship that it is, that foreigners can live in relative freedom and enjoy the comforts of good dining or, you know, trip to a safari trip to the park, whereas Rwandans are very, very, very aware of what happens to them if they don't say the right thing, if they do the wrong thing. They can quickly get, they can lose their land, they can lose their jobs, their bank accounts can be shut down. You know, government comes knocking on their door. They don't, the government doesn't renew their passports. There are a range of ways in which the government can pressure people and intimidate them. And in many cases, as I mentioned, you know, kill them if, if, if it's, uh, you know, if they've criticized Kagame too, too badly. You mentioned that 70% figure, that 70% of government expenditures each year are Western supported. How else does the West support the Kagame regime? I mean, can he govern without Western help? So this is the irony. Kagame often, you know, he's so popular in Rwanda, you know, in Rwanda to what extent we don't know because there are no free elections, but he's popular around the world in the West and across Africa because he criticizes the West. But the truth is that he's a puppet government. He's a puppet president just as, you know, just as much as any of the other puppet presidents that the West has financed. Without Western financing or military support, he wouldn't be able to hold on to power. And that's the reality and the irony, the, the hypocrisy of his narrative versus the reality of his rule. The West is propping him up. 
uh, he's eliminated almost every uh, serious opposition candidate. And the West has just stood by and continued to send him 70% of budgetary funding for his government. And that speaks to the hypocrisy of the West. You right. Know? Yeah, uh, I think it speaks to Kagame's hypocrisy, too. And, and here's a leader who is a vocal critic of the West, who delivers these speeches uh, denouncing post-imperial behavior. Uh, uh, but yet takes billions of dollars a year to prop up his regime. So knowing all this, why does the West continue to support him? So there are many reasons, but one is what I mentioned before. Kagame provides troops and peacekeepers, which are which is very valuable that Western governments don't have to risk their own troops' lives in, in battles, in conflicts in Africa. Kagame is very willing to send out his troops. There's other military alliances between Rwanda you know, the, the CIA and the Pentagon, AFRICOM, U.S.'s Africa Command uh, has close alliances with Kagame. And th that's valuable competition, to the West. Competition with China, too, for influence in, in Africa. Totally. There's competition with China. There's also a level of guilt, you know, uh, for what happened during the genocide that the West did not intervene. Uh, a million Rwandans were killed, you know, over three months. And the reports were coming out, but the West kind of fought to not label what was happening a genocide so that they wouldn't have to intervene. People like Bill Clinton, who were in power at that time, or Kofi Annan, they felt a great degree of guilt that they were not, uh, they did not do more to stop the killing of the Tutsis, you know, in, in Rwanda and moderate Hutus. And alongside that, there were massacres of Hutus committed by Kagame's forces. All of that, you know, there's a famous book by a human rights watch researcher called uh, Leave None to Tell the Story. And in that, she says, countless lives would have been saved had the UN intervened. But in a, in a geopolitical sense, you're totally right. Russia and China are now moving into Africa, competing for resources. Russia is in the Central African Republic. You know, the Wagner Group is there. They're making money from gold and diamond mines that they're using to buy weapons and recruit soldiers with for the war in Ukraine. So there's a, I think Africa now and many parts of Africa are, 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 uh, is a, is a battleground for uh, geopolitical power and influence. And the West is being pushed back and China and Russia are moving in. And Rwanda is playing, recently Kagame said, you know, nobody should criticize Russia for, for its presence in Africa. So Kagame is also trying to play that game. And, and the West, you know, understandably is, is concerned. Is there a sense also that the West is interested in, and, and, and Western NGOs are interested in holding Rwanda up as a model, you know, either for, for other countries to follow in Africa or to prove that humanitarian aid models are functioning? A hundred percent. You touch upon a very important point. Uh, you know, I, I met an aid worker in Rwanda. She was American and had gone to the Kennedy School. And she told me, you try to get people to wash their hands in India. You mount this giant campaign. Maybe 10 percent of people you'll reach and maybe change their behavior. They'll start washing their hands. In Rwanda, if you get Kagame to mention in one of his speeches that everybody should wash their hands, more than 90 percent of people the next day will begin to wash their hands. That's the level of control and influence that he has. And I asked her, what do you think about this? It sounds scary. And she said, no, it's great. And so Rwanda has become this uh, 
you know, uh, in, in a world where, you know, we've had books like Dead Aid talking about how, you know, aid programs uh, achieve so little. And Rwanda is one of the few countries where aid programs achieve a great deal of their targets because Kagame, all he has to do is instruct people to follow the rules and they do uh, to, to, you know, huge percentages that you don't see in many other countries. And so perversely, for aid organizations, Rwanda is a great place to keep sending money, to keep showing that, hey, we need our aid programs to be better funded because look at look at Rwanda, we're achieving results. That's proof that our aid programs work. In reality, it's not proof that the aid programs work. It's proof that uh, dictatorship can, you know, get a lot of things done very fast. And that's the secret that the aid organizations don't want to talk about, that they're achieving their targets. You know, their bed net, uh, people using bed nets or people going to the hospital, all of these targets, they're achieving them by using Kagame's authoritarian government. And that's, that's, that's gains, but at a huge cost because you're strengthening a dictatorship at the same time as you're improving, you know, health metrics. And we've seen in many, many countries in, in Syria, in Libya, in Iraq, under those dictators, Saddam Hussein, Bashar al-Assad, Gaddafi, the health metrics went up, education rates went up. But then at some point, uh, power gets so concentrated that, that it, it, the country breaks down. And when power shifts, it happens with violence. And that's the tragic uh, reality of Rwanda today. That's the tragedy of what the aid industry and Western governments are building. They're, they're concentrating, they're participating in the concentration of power. And in the past, we've seen that when violence occurs in Rwanda, unfortunately, it, it, it's, it's extremely severe. And the last thing Rwandans need is to live in fear of another genocide. And that's the situation you know, another genocide or ethnic cleansing or massacres. And that's the situation Rwandans are in today. It's not just Rwanda, though, right? I mean, we, the impact of Kagame's rule spills across its border. I mean, can you talk a bit about Kagame's impact on regional security? 100%. Like, you know, uh, you're so right to bring that up. The, the war in Congo was sparked when Kagame invaded Congo in 1996. He invaded twice. His forces invaded Congo twice, a uh, country many, many times larger. And in 1996 and 1998, and they swept across Congo, his forces, and installed a new president, uh, Laurent Kabila, in 1997. So they even changed the government in Congo. They had influence over the Congolese government. Uh, and then subsequently, even his son, when Joseph Kabila came to power. But in the course of sweeping across Congo, they killed at least tens of thousands of people. There are mass graves all across Congo that in 2010, the United Nations released a report. It's called the UN Mapping Report, and it's gruesome. They said, you know, we don't have the resources to investigate each and every massacre because there are so many, but we want to just map all the mass graves so that people can know the extent to which these killings occurred in, in Congo by the Rwandan forces. And they qualified. They said, you know, the mapping report says that these killings, if uh, qualified as such by a competent court, could uh, could be acts of genocide, you know, acts of genocide in quotes. And, uh, and so that's very serious to to accuse Kagame's forces of uh, acts of genocide in Congo, uh, potential acts of genocide. You know, court would have to, you know, look at the evidence and confirm that. It, it gives you an indication of the extent of the killings. Uh, you know, the mapping report cites maybe tens of thousands of uh, people killed, of, uh, in this case, Hutus killed by Kagame's mostly Tutsi forces. Just um, pausing there, I mean, the, the reason, can you explain the reason why 
Kagame is interested in, in the Congo to begin with? Once Kagame took power, the Hutu government and all its army got really worried that they were going to be targeted by Kagame. And so they fled into Congo and set up refugee camps. And from those refugee camps, they were mounting attacks back into Rwanda and attacking Kagame's government, hoping to take back power. And so at some point, Kagame got annoyed by this and said, you know, we just need to get rid of the Hutu soldiers and former soldiers, the uh, Hutu fighters in Congo. And so he sent his forces into Congo to invade. The Hutus fled from Eastern Congo all the way across Congo. And along with the Hutu forces, you know, were many civilians, women, children, all kinds of, uh, you know, families fled with them. And Kagame's forces targeted the Hutu uh, former soldiers, the fighters, but also killed, you know, according to this UN mapping report, killed anybody who was Hutu, including women and children. And so that's where the allegations of acts of genocide comes in. But the initial initial motive for Kagame was military. He wanted to get rid of the former Hutu soldiers who were attacking his government, and he wanted to get rid of that threat. And, and the remnants of that conflict you know, exists today. Five or six million people have been killed in Congo in that war that was sparked in 1996 and has not ended since. It's insane. You know, that, that the level of killing, it's, it's the biggest war in the world today and the war we should be paying attention to way more than we do. Anjan, last question. Paul Kagame said a few years ago that he would step down in 2024. As you've said, he's reneged on that promise. Um, so we may have another decade or more of Kagame's rule. What happens after Kagame? What is the future of Rwanda? I think that's uh, that's the most important question. That's an important question that many, many academics and observers of Rwanda have been asking. The signs are that he's grooming his daughter, Ange Kagame, uh, possibly his son, Ivan, to take over from him. So he wants to you know, uh, build a dynasty with where his family controls the country. But history tells us that in Rwanda, uh, transitions of power are accompanied by violence, especially when the, it's a dictatorship. And uh, most observers and analysts on Rwanda will agree that Kagame's rule, by concentrating power so so entirely in him, in his office and in himself, that it's very unlikely that, you know, any transition of power will happen. You know, any change after Kagame is going to happen in a peaceful way. He's just not created the conditions for that to happen. And uh, that's the big risk and danger that Rwandans face today, that, you know, things seem calm in Rwanda today because Kagame has a lid on, uh, has total power almost in the country. But what happens after after he goes? And that's that's a fear because he's destroyed every institution in the country. The judiciary, you know, responds to him. Uh, the parliament responds to him. There's no free press. Every institution that could help usher in a peaceful transition of power, he's destroyed. There's a real, real risk of uh, violence. Anjan, thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Not everyone will be happy with the way we told this story. And I, I want to make clear that regardless of how it happened, Rwanda's transformation is incredible. For reference, in 1994, the year of the genocide, Rwanda's GDP was around $750 million, nearly identical to its neighbor Burundi, which shares not only a comparable population, but a comparable history of ethnic tension between Hutu and Tutsis. But today, Burundi's GDP is under $3 billion, and Rwanda's is upwards of $13 billion. 
But the question remains, and it's a question that Anjan couldn't answer and a question that the president himself can't answer. What happens next? What happens when Kagami is gone? Is it possible to sustain the political system that he's built without him or without more fear, more repression and more violence? And what happens to the country, to the, to the region, if the system ultimately falls apart? If Western governments really do feel guilty for the part they've played in Rwanda's history, I think they have a duty to think seriously about these questions. If you liked this show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you're listening somewhere else, tell a friend about us. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Monday.